Welcome to Beyond the Practice Room, the podcast that bridges the gap between music and medicine. We are your hosts, Kaylee Miller and Janice Ying. Each episode, we will explore a different topic in musicians' health and wellness. This is Kaylee Miller, and today we have a conversation just between the two of us, me and Janice, and we are talking a little bit about physical therapy, her most recent award, when to see a physical therapist, what's the difference between a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a massage therapist, and more. So that's kind of the agenda we have for today. But that's to a tall s- order. It's a tall order. Lots of things. <laughs> but I want to start by saying that, uh, Janice, you you won a thing. You did a thing. You I did a thing. I have been doing a thing for a long time, and people <laughs> figured it out. And um, yeah, I'm actually very honored to be receiving the thing. So the thing that I'm referring to in uh, non-overt terms is from the American Physical Therapy Association, APTA, the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy, which I had to look up to make sure I said all the words correctly. (laughs) And the award is the 2021 Emerging Leader Award. And Janice is the only winner in that particular category amongst other winners from the AOPT. But uh, what does the Emerging Leader Award mean? What is it? Oh boy. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the the purpose behind the award, um, as I have been told, um, <laughs> is is um, that they are trying to identify people who are somewhat early on in their career, um, so ten years or less, um, in kind of showing, pushing pushing the field of physical therapy forward. So, um, I mean, it's a pretty tall ask (laughs) to push a whole field forward. And um, I am so honored um, that, you know, people actually put my name into the hat. I was nominated by my colleagues in the Performing Arts uh, Special Interest Group, and I owe a great deal of debt to them in terms of um, kind of the opportunities that I've had so far and also just them kind of seeing what I'm doing and kind of encouraging me along the last decade or so of my work. So um, yeah, it's a huge honor for me. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been <laughs> recognized at this scale. Um, so it's, it's I'm still trying to process it. And I also hate talking about myself. So it's also like doubly hard for me. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, I'm super honored and I couldn't be prouder and it's it's so it's it's pretty great. So um the award's gonna be broadcast um at the end of February. So February twenty twenty one. Um awesome. so not only do I get to watch myself on video live uh, like probably hundreds or thousands of other people will as well. So I'll probably just be hiding under a table or something like that um, while the award is being honored. <laughs> and I think one of the questions I have, and you don't have to know the answer to this, 
has the APTA previously drawn a fair amount of attention to physical therapists in performing arts? Has that been a, a thing that's happened a whole lot to your knowledge? Um, in, in general, so yeah, yes and no. So the, I've been a, a part of the performing arts uh, SIG or special interest group for pretty much my entire career as a PT. And that's also including um, as a student. So I got involved in the SIG uh, very early, early on. Um, and that SIG in particular, I mean, I'm biased, but <laughs> I really do think that they have been really um, aggressive is not the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? Really, really trying to push their agenda and sharing, um, sharing their knowledge and kind of pushing kind of groundbreaking research um, in the field of physical therapy. And um, so I think the PASIG, as we call ourselves, um, has gotten a lot of recognition from the orthopedic section um, or the orthopedic academy. They recently changed their name a couple of years ago. Um, so in, within the orthopedic academy, we have, you know, a pretty big presence in terms of one of being one of the SIGs that does a ton of um, outreach and activities and such. But, you know, there's always room for growth. And I'm very honored um, to be a part of that leadership. Um, I've been on the leadership oh, for probably like eight or nine years now. Um, so it's it's been really great to be part of like these really big projects um, and kind of pushing the field forward. So, um, and I mean, I was not the only one <laughs> for sure. So I just kind of come along for the ride because a lot of the PASIG, um, you know, there's different areas of performing arts, physical therapy, and dance medicine is a really big uh, portion of it in just in performing arts medicine in general. So music probably is a close second no, not close. It's it's a second, but it's not close. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's a, a big reason why, um, you know, I've been able to have a voice is because um, I have helped represent kind of the musician voice in the performing arts world in terms of physical therapy. And um, yeah, I'm always looking for more PTs to get involved in treating musicians. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a big passion of mine. It's not just my job, but it's it's a big passion of mine. Um, so I'm always I always get super geeky and nerdy whenever I find someone else who like is into that stuff as well. So um, yeah, it's performing arts medicine in the PT world is. Uh, forced to be forced to be reckoned with, I would say. Um, and I mean, I, I definitely think within the last few years, the momentum has continued to grow and grow. And it's become a lot more normal that people understand that there are performing arts medicine practitioners, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, we're always looking for like the next thing. Sure. And with that, you're also presenting for PAMA, the Performing Arts Medicine Association, in March yeah. or April, right? I don't, uh, I don't remember. March. March, okay. March. And what is yes, that? March. What are you presenting on? Somewhat unrelated, but still related. 
Uh, let me think about this. I have, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So that one is going to be, um, I was asked to speak about just present some cases on, um, kind of my approach and how I've treated musicians. Um, and then there's also the opportunity to have other members of the audience kind of, uh, present their case and I will help kind of talk through um, or maybe try and walk through what I would do if I were treating them. Not Mm -hmm. obviously I'm not, not treating them, Um, but uh, kind of what I would look at and kind of how I, my perspective on how I would approach uh, the issue. So um, yeah, it's, it's great. So the, I think it's called the young professionals, um, a committee or something like I'm totally butchering it, but Young Professionals Committee, we'll just go with that. Um, they have uh, started to put out a series of um, different talks, and I think they're trying to do it like once a month or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I was one of the ones that they asked um, to give a presentation. Um, I'm super thrilled to do it. Um, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, I, it's going to be on kind of like the upper extremity and or nerve, uh, nerve issues in, Mm -hmm. uh, in musicians. Um, and so we'll kind of see how that evolves and, um, yeah, that'll be a really fun one. I think it'll be really good, um, conversations, I'm sure. Sure. And people can see that if they're a member of PAMA, even if they're not a clinician, correct or no? Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think for PAMA members, it's, op- it's open to the whole um, membership. And then I think they, uh, I think there are giving an option um, for non-members to join, but maybe at some small cost. price. Yeah. Um, but I'm not 100% sure of like what that cost is. Sure. Yeah. So with that, let's launch into the topic for today, which is at the, at its root, Janice, what is a physical therapist? Big question to go with your big award. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, okay. So in, in the fundamental sphere, um, physical therapists consider, we consider ourselves to be movement specialists at the core. Um, and that's, you know, you can find that verbiage on APTA. And, but really what that means is that it, it sets us apart from other disciplines that might have a lot of gray um, and kind of crossover with physical therapy in a sense. Um, You think about like chiropractors or massage therapists or um, other kind of like movement coaches or personal trainers. Like what does uh, PT do specifically? And what that is, is we are experts in how people move and watching people move and interpreting what that means if we watch someone move, what, what does that all mean? What's going on under the hood and also on the outside? Mm-hmm. Um, so PT in itself has a ton of different settings. Um, you, you know, you can have an orthopedic PT like myself. You could have a neurologic uh, specialist PT. You could have someone working in the hospital uh, whose job might be teaching them how to walk or get out of a chair or... Um, you could have a PT who works with animals and teaching those animals how to recover from injuries. But at the core of it, we are all uh, training or helping people improve their lives through movement. 
And um, so that's a very long-winded answer, but that's in, in the essence of what a PT is. Yeah. And then in terms of the manual therapy component, um, the DPT, which is the standard, it's been the standard for physical therapy for like 12 or 13 years now. Yep. So yep, that's about right. Um, there's a, a fair amount of manual adjustment involved or training that you're, you're getting as a physical therapist, whether that is in soft tissue or otherwise. And I think there's sometimes some confusion about what separates a physical therapist from another kind of manual therapist. Okay. Um, so yeah, all, all PTs get some kind of training on hands-on technique. Every PT has an orthopedic module that they take, whether it's for a year or a year and a half or whatnot. Um, if we're talking about like orthopedic physical therapy, which is kind of like your traditional like sense, I guess, um, or the most common, I would say, um, you'll, you'll find a lot of physical therapists doing manual treatments, meaning like hands-on. It could look like massage in a sense, um, or it could look like um, deep tissue. But kind of going back to what a PT is, is a movement specialist. So mm -hmm. basically what we do is, you know, we take people through tests and we kind of work to kind of decipher where someone's impairment might be or where, where something might be going wrong or restricting them from being able to move in a quote unquote ideal way. You know, we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole with that, but let's just say there is a hypothetical ideal movement pattern. Um, so then we look at, okay, well, is this person not able to move uh, let's just go with like straightening their elbow. Are they not able to straighten their elbow because the joint itself is really stiff? Mm -hmm. Or is it because the muscle is tight, like your biceps is really tight um, and not allowing you the joint itself to straighten out? Or is it because um, there might be some nerve tension that might be limiting um, someone from straightening out their elbow. So we go through all of this process to figure out like where that impairment is. And so we could apply manual techniques such as, you know, massage, even though PTs don't usually call it like massage, but everyone else does. So, um, we call it soft tissue mobilization. Um, we can do joint mobilizations where the intervention is kind of targeted more at the joint itself. Mm -hmm. um, now, if there's a lot of confusion, or not confusion, but kind of like overlap with what a PT does and what a chiropractor does, um, I will say that historically, so historically, orthopedic physical therapists, meaning and manual therapists um, who are PTs and chiropractors, they learn very similar techniques. Um, there's a lot of crossover because those techniques come from osteopathy, um, which is another branch of medicine. So you could have your doctor of osteopathy. And those physicians who are full-on MDs or equivalent of an MD, but they just have another different spin on it um, and different uh, approach to how they treat their patients, um, those osteopaths, those DOs, also can perform those same manual techniques as a PT or a chiropractor does. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it comes down to 
their training and their approach and why they're doing that intervention. And I think yeah. that's the big distinguishing factor of uh, what sets a PT d- maybe different in a sense than a chiropractor is the manual technique is very similar. It's just that like what goal they are trying to achieve by performing that specific technique at that specific time might differ from practitioner or discipline to discipline. Yeah. And with that, I just want to ask, have you either pre-PT or currently, have you ever seen a chiropractor? I'm just curious. I actually have not. Um, And it's not because I don't like chiropractors. I actually know a, a lot of amazing chiropractors. I just fortunately have not required one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't hate chiropractors <laughs> uh, contrary to the stereotype that, you know, the two are always at war with each other, which is, I mean, in my perspective could be furthest from the truth, but um, yeah, I have not seen a chiropractor. No, but I do refer to uh, some chiropractors often. Yeah. And I think as someone who has seen chiropractors, I will say that it, I find it to be a weird experience, me personally. Um, I would say that the level of assessment I get when I show up to someone is usually pretty minimal. Like I sit, I stand, and then they do something mildly uh, abrasive to my (laughs) skeleton. And it kind of, it's interesting to me because it's not necessarily in service of that bigger thing, but that also depends on the chiropractor. I know there are chiropractors with a big picture concept that are looking at that. And the bulk of my recent experiences have been like, I would say almost like drive-through chiropractic where I'm in and out in 10 minutes and I, I feel kind of like, huh, didn't they want to know how I walked or how I hold my instrument or something like that? So that's my most recent experiences. That's not all of them, but it's just yeah. one one aspect of it. I, I would say that just like any other industry or area, like um, you're, you're going to run a different, a, a wide gamut of different styles. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I've heard of um, chiropractic practices doing the same thing that, you know, you just kind of walk in, do like a adjust, like a quick adjustment and you're in and out um, and people love it. Like, and that's fine. If that's what they feel helps them. Great. Um, yeah. There are also chiropractors that take, I would say like equal amounts of time as like I would um, assessing a patient and going through like a formal process, but maybe in that I'm not talking about your particular case, but I'm talking about in those like quick adjustment scenarios, like maybe the chiropractor had already done their assessment before and they already have a good understanding of that particular patient's body and physiology and whatnot. And they already know what to do. They just kind of quick in, quick out. And then, you know, everyone, everyone's time is valuable. So, (laughs) um, I mean, there's different approaches and, you know, you can also find PT clinics that um, I I hope people don't get the um, get this experience. But you know, like some PT clinics, you know, you you go and see a PT, and you're in and you're you're with a PT for like ten minutes, um, yeah. 10, 15 minutes. And I mean, I hear that all the time, and I find myself apologizing to patients who come and see me, who tell me about these experiences, because I'm like, that is not what PT is. Um, But 
you know, there are challenges and, um, you know, constraints with the healthcare system, which is another discussion we could have later. Um, But, you know, there are some amazing PTs who can, you know, kind of do a quick diagnosis. And again, this is assuming that they've already done their due diligence with a formal evaluation in the past, maybe, um, where they, they might do a quick intervention um, and be very effective in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that gets back to this. The bigger issue, too, is that it depends on the context in which you're seeing this clinician. And so I think for me, with some of the chiropractic, it's been through the larger health insurance system. And I think that the health insurance system, I'm not going to name the name, but I think they book the chiropractic for every 10 minutes. So I don't think it's necessarily their fault if that's how they're doing their, like, if that's how they're scheduling their productivity and their efficacy, that puts the chiropractor at a tough, or a PT or whoever it is, like when, when a, and that gets into productivity from a clinician standpoint, which is really tough, is when you have, um, in some hospitals and care settings, you're expected as a clinician to see X people in X time. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care about them. It means that the system is not set up for you. Um, I mean, again, like how much time do we have? Because this is, this is where I can get on a big soapbox, but we won't get there. Um, but I, that you, you hit on kind of where, where it's, where it could be at, um, or probably is at is the productivity portion of it because, um, a lot of insurances unfortunately don't reimburse at rates high enough for, um, businesses to make money like at the end of the day a physical therapy clinic or a chiropractic clinic a whatever clinic um, is a business and they have to be able to pay their staff pay their support staff pay their practitioners and hopefully turn a profit at the end of the day Um, but if you unfortunately the reimbursement amounts um, are not equivalent to the time and value and expertise that are put in um, to all of this. So that's kind of like a very short and compact statement. Um, The answer is yes. Yes to those things. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's a, that's a whole nother topic, I think. (laughs) No, I think it's a good one, but not, to, to go back, when should someone see a physical therapist? When should they potentially see a chiropractor? When should they see a massage therapist? When should they see anybody? <laughs> Ooh. Well, my perspective, and I mean, you can, I, I want to hear your thoughts about this too. Um, but my perspective is that ideally people should be seeing any or all of these people or disciplines um, before there is a problem. Right. So like usually people come and see me as a PT after something has broken or something is gone awry um, or they're having difficulty with something. Um, Whereas if I had my way um, and I lived in a perfect world, people would be seeing me kind of across the spectrum because obviously things are going to come up where people have aches and pains or, you know, God forbid, if they like fell and broke their wrist, you know, they're going to need physical therapy or occupational therapy in order to kind of get back to their playing conditions. So, you know, there's that. But 
I would love to be able to see people kind of throughout uh, the spectrum from when they don't even have pain, but kind of identifying sources, not to say that they will get pain if they continue playing this way, but just making sure that everything is working in the optimal condition. Um, Yeah, no, I think that all checks out. And it unfortunately has very little overlap with how the American health insurance system works. Right, correct. Um, Yes, very much so. I think that's a really interesting point. So if we think of professional athletes or any kind of other professional mover of any persuasion, not even athletics, they have contact with coaches and professionals all along the way, even if they feel fine. You watched the beginning of an NBA game, at least Mm pre-COVID, and you saw them getting warmed up with a trainer and someone watched them do this and that. And that's like a normal part of their experience is getting feedback constant feedback loops. And I think for some odd reason in music, we have this idea that like you finish grad school, you win an orchestra job and you're like done learning about things or about your body (laughs) or like, you're good, you're good to go. And that's very far from the truth. You've made it. You've made it. You don't need to know anything else. You're done. You're done learning. And I think that's such a, a fallacy. And, um, I do wish, I mean, I think that gets into a separate issue. I wish that it was more possible for people to see people of whatever, like, medium they want, whether it's massage or PT or even mental health. I I wish it was easier. I think that's the part that's tough. Well, I think it is getting easier in a sense um, because a lot of physical therapists, um, actually across the country, there is a level of direct access. Um, you got to define state. that. <laughs> you got to so, define no, what I, that I means. will. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to. But so direct access means that you don't legally. So every state is different. I'm going to put that out there because every state has different rules. Um, but in a sense, um, direct access means that you don't need a physician's script or referral. Mm-hmm. in order to come and see a physical therapist. Which is amazing. Which is amazing because it kind of um, breaks away from that traditional old school model where, you know, back in the day when PTs started, PTs were techs. Like we weren't even, we didn't even have a master or even a bachelor's degree in the very, very early days. Yeah. And then it just kind of slowly evolved into a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And then like, 10, 15 years ago. So I think 1990 was like one of the the first year where uh, the first DPT program began. And the whole push for the DPT, um, Doctor of Physical Therapy degree, was so that physical therapists could practice autonomously um, in the future. Yeah. And in order to do that, we had to learn um, radiology. We had to learn how to read MRIs and x-rays. Um, we had to learn pharmacology. So what medications people are taking and, um, you know, what interactions or how those work and how that could affect healing and all those things. And then we had to take, um, you know, we have to be able to screen patients. So knowing where, you know, the stomach refers pain to like, You could have a spleen rupture and have left shoulder pain, but if someone just comes into you with left shoulder pain and they're like, my left shoulder hurts, but you have to go through all the systems to check, okay, is it a spleen rupture or is it really truly left shoulder pain? So it's that that level of um, kind of like, it's it's not like we know how to like prescribe medication because we don't, we do not prescribe medication or we don't 
like we're not radiologists, so we don't interpret x-rays or MRIs, but we know how to look at these things and know how it will relate to this patient's plan of care down the line. Um, So direct access um, means that, you know, in the state of California where I practice, um, a, a person could walk in off the street into my hypothetical brick and mortar clinic and, um, and be like, I have neck pain. Can you treat me? And I could say, yes, I don't need to send them away to the doctor to have them have the doctor take a look at them for five minutes, write a script for PT, and then have them come back. Um, and with, and with come back in three neck months. That's the thing is usually that right. process is a giant pain. Right. So, you know, if you know or if you've had similar symptoms before and you know that PT helped with this, like what you had in the past, you could go straight to a PT and get treatment. So, yeah. But we do have limitations in California so I can see a patient for 12 visits or 45 days, whichever one comes first. Mm-hmm. So um, after that 45 days, if the patient hadn't been already seen by a physician, I would need to send them back um, to check in with a physician and just you know be like, hey, are we still good? Are we still moving in the right direction? Is there something else going on that I don't, I can't physically test for? Um, right. You know, so it's it's. I think it's good. It's a it's a it's a good uh, first few steps. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, this battle for direct access. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see how PT continues to evolve on that front. Um, how many states, just as a guess, do you think have direct access? Actually, so I just read an article yesterday saying that all 50 in some capacity have direct mm-hmm. access. Okay. But again, like every state is different. And I think the other thing that is worth talking about is that even if your state has direct access, if you're going to be using your insurance, you also should be checking to see if your insurance requires you to go see your physician first mm. in yep. order to, for that practitioner to get reimbursed or yeah. for you if you're submitting like doing like payments um, if you are going to get reimbursed, if the insurance is going to cover that because sometimes they can deny it because the insurance themselves require a physician's referral for physical therapy. So it's kind of a mess. Um, That's a good answer. It's not uh, consistent um, across state to payer to business. Lines, yeah. Yeah. So here's a question. How does it work at Colburn? So let's say I'm a student at Colburn. I have suddenly uh, Benjamin buttoned my age. I'm 19. How do I see you when you are employed by the school? How does that work from an insurance component or otherwise? Or do I just show up and hang out with you and have you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that'd be great. No. Um, so the, the school pays me. Um, mm-hmm. It's not through insurance. And okay. so... Um, Basically, the students just schedule an appointment. And I, I'm able to work under the direct access because um, they don't need a physician to come and see me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm able to take them on. And some, pa- some patients or students 
Um, I am seeing them for like true physical therapy where they have an issue. Some I am seeing them for kind of wellness or maintenance or, you know, some, they might have questions about their playing setup. So it's, it's kind of like my ideal way of like practicing in the sense that, you know, I do have uh, some patients or clients that, you know, do have legitimate physical ailments that we're trying to work through, but then also um, trying to troubleshoot and making things better, you know, is that that performance portion of um, kind of like my clinic name is Opus Physical Therapy and Performance. And that performance part is like, how do we make things better? How do we make it more, even more refined that we are than we are? Um, Right. And I think that's actually would be an amazing model to see at more schools, but also actually at a professional orchestra as someone yes. who, who does that. I think that would be so amazing if orchestras, even, I mean, even if it wasn't 20, 30, 40 hours, I think if you had somebody that was there, that was part of, I mean, that's what the ballet does for dancers. They have a PT yeah. on staff. I, I work with a ballet company in uh, Los Angeles and I go in, usually I go in, kind of closer to like their performances, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I go in, I'm accessible. They kind of work out the schedule on their own. And during their time they show up, I see them, I patch them back together and off they go. So, yeah. um, yeah. I think, yeah, that would kind of be a hope if we had our fantasy life situation is for this to be a, uh, integrated part of arts education starting earlier on, I think for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I definitely see it kind of trending that way. It's just not there yet. Yeah. And so we've kind of talked about how or when to see a physical therapist is when things potentially are not bothering you for maintenance. But let's say someone, and this happens all the time to me, someone's like, I have this weird shoulder thing and I can't lift my shoulder over my head. And I'm like, okay, I think you should see a physical therapist. And it's so fascinating to me that musicians are so reticent to see PTs when like there's really glaring holes in their movement pattern, but, um, or they're just, they're, they're so used to tolerating discomfort that they're not, uh, they're not excited about PT. So when, let's say someone's having a thing, a nagging pain, but it's not what you and I would think is, is like totally falling apart, but when should they see somebody in that sort of nagging pain situation? Um, That's kind of, uh, I mean, it's one of those, like, it depends kind of answers. But, um, I mean, if we're talking about a musician, I would say if if your pain doesn't go away or if if your pain comes on within, let's say, like, an hour of playing or doesn't go away within 30 minutes of you stopping, Mm -hmm. I think that might be a good place to start. Great. Although I would say the sooner the better, Um, right? Like, because if you've already reached that point, then, then we're kind of looking at, okay, well, what, what do we need to change or what, what, what areas are maybe kind of not functioning at its optimal condition kind of at those points? Like, why, why are we why is it taking so short to come on and why is it taking so long to go away? Like those are not necessarily normal responses. Oh, I kind of like banged my elbow on a thing. It's gone within like two seconds. Yeah. Um, So lingering, I think that's a really good point. Lingering pain, long, uh, 
or no resolution in terms of discomfort and rapid onset of symptoms with music or life or whatever. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think PT is in a sense having kind of a renaissance in, in the sense that, um, you know, they're, they're trying to make themselves like we as PTs know what we are able to do, but the problem is that the public doesn't really know what we do. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of see PTs as being a little bit more out there and showing, you know, kind of showing, showing the world like what the potentials are. Yeah. Um, but I also do think that musicians, people in general, but musicians specifically, um, maybe have history of running into other medical professionals who didn't give them great advice um, or have friends who went to medical professionals and they didn't get good advice. So then they go back to their friends like, oh my God, I had the worst experience. They just told me to stop playing and that's not possible. Or I, I had another... I had another person tell me that um, one of their medical professionals asked them to play a different instrument on their off season. And I'm like, right. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) I mean, I think, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had this experience where someone said, well, can't you play the instrument on the other side? Would you get tired on the first side? And I'm like, Oh honey, if I played violin or viola on the other side, it would sound like a true train wreck it would sound bad it's not something I I mean I, it's a little late in the game I'm, I'm 20 something years in this whole left side thing I think my right, <laughs> right side's a little late to the party yeah I I've also been asked to do that to play in a different way um like do you have to lift your violin up like can't you just like play it down low like wouldn't that be better I'm like that's not how that works honey that's not how that works um I mean, I've heard so many ridiculous things, either from my own experiences or what people have told me. Yeah. Um, well, this gets so us I, into the question is, how do you know when the setup you have with a clinician or a medical professional is not working? When is it time to seek another medical perspective? And I, I would say some of these are real winners. If someone tells you to just play a different <laughs> instrument, you know, or, or the, the famous bass joke, like, why don't you play flute? It's like, well, no, double bass players have committed to playing the bass. They're very happy. Please don't tell them to play right. the flute. But right. uh, I think some of these are good starters. But from a more uh, sophisticated perspective, when is when is it time to maybe shift to a different uh, professional? Uh, I mean, I think, look, I I think that there is a professional for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And people communicate in different ways. I know we've talked about this before in the past as well. Like, yeah, people communicate in different ways. People interpret what someone says in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could have one patient or a client that, you know, we get along great and they're right in step with me all the whole way. And then I could get another patient like the next hour and it's just like crickets, like yeah. And it's not through, you know, their intellect or my intellect. Cause it, it's, it's just, it's not a great fit. Okay. Um, 
So I think the most important thing that people need to think about when looking for any practitioner, not just PT, but physicians, massage therapists, chiropractors, even teachers, um, is that they take the time to listen. Um, Because I think that you can actually get most of the story and kind of figure out what's going on in order to troubleshoot just through listening to someone talk about their story. Um, And I think then taking that listening portion and then trying to relate it back to what the problem actually is. Um, I think that's key. So basically we're looking for a dialogue and collaborative relationship and a situation in which the medical professional, whatever, or whatever kind of person you're working with, hears what you have to say, acknowledges them, the points, maybe comes up with some solutions, maybe has some questions, but it's not a uh, one-sided kind of, I don't know what to call it. It's not a dictatorial relationship. It's a collaboration. It's absolutely a collaboration. Um, I, I did a I did a presentation um, a couple summers ago. This is at the last, the, the last PAMA conference that was in person. <laughs> but I did a, I did a talk with um, one of my really good friends um, on kind of collaborative relationships in performing arts and the medical professional. I forget what the title is, but it's something around that gist. Um, and I think the most important thing that we talked about, and I mean, I learned a lot in terms of like researching for the actual talk itself, but How I like to approach things is that it should be like a team approach where Mm -hmm. the patient is the captain of the team. Like it's their body. Like they should have a say (laughs) in, in what they do. And really my job is to offer my expertise and suggest, give you all the options that might help you with that problem. Yeah. And I think that if you find a practitioner that is able to do that in the way that um, is meaningful to you, then don't let go of that person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that could look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what do you look for when you're – I mean, I, I don't think you've been to PT specifically, but I know you know them, and then also you've had your fair share of – You've been a patient at some point um, sure. to somebody. So what, yeah. what I will say I generally, because of my pituitary tumor, for those of you who don't know me, I have a pituitary tumor, uh, long story, but I, it's non-cancerous. I look generally, first of all, for a female practitioner because the way that the pituitary interacts in women is different than it does in men. Not that a normal endocrinologist of any gender or sex will have good things, but I know for me personally, I feel more secure with a female practitioner. Um, also because early on I had a male neurologist who said to me, oh, well, as tumors go, you have the best one. And that was early on in my diagnosis and it scared the crap out of me. So that, that was just me personally. But, um, I have had some really negative experiences still with female endocrinologists. So that's a fun thing. Um, I'm looking personally for someone who understands that, uh, endocrinology affects your mood, your metabolism, your energy. I know that sounds really basic, but uh, 
when you're on a drug to manipulate some aspect, whether it's thyroid or something else, which I'm, I don't have hypothyroidism, but any aspect of uh, that whole, basically anything hormonal, your whole body is going to be affected. So it's like right. a, a good example is my pituitary tumor does affect my metabolism. Uh, no surprise. And um, I had an endocrinologist in California who would make a lot of comments about my weight. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm like five foot seven. I am definitely of the more Amazonian persuasion. I'm a big woman, but I'm, I'm maybe five to seven pounds over the BMI normal, which in the scheme of the world is really not a big deal and right. has no bearing on my pituitary tumor blood tests. It, it really hasn't made a difference in almost 10 years. Like it doesn't matter if I'm the lower end of my personal spectrum or the higher, I can have problems when things are lower. I can have no problems when my weight is higher. There, there's really not a direct connection. And this particular practitioner that I had for two years, I dreaded going to see her because she would always comment. If I lost weight, I was good. If I gained weight, I was bad. Uh, and she wasn't great at acknowledging the fact that uh, with my pituitary tumor is close to my optic nerve on the right. And that means that sometimes uh, headaches, vision issues, that sort of my concerns were generally not acknowledged and uh, or side effects from the drug I take. I take a, a dopamine agonist. It's actually in the same class as what people take for Parkinson's. And so there are side effects to that. And I would bring these things up and she would kind of dismiss me. And instead, we would talk about my weight which uh, I could that I could talk about for a long time and use a lot of expletives. But I was really bothered because it was also a diabetic clinic and folks with any kind of endocrinology, but especially diabetes, whether it's type 1, type 2, anything, tend to have altered metabolism. And so if I, as a 26-year-old, pretty active white woman, was being treated like crap from a medical professional, how is she treating everybody else? And I was generally the youngest person, one of the smaller people. Uh, that really upset me because I was just imagining all these people from different backgrounds, different racial experiences, uh, having a really toxic experience with this woman. So I did not enjoy my time with her. I stayed with her, I think, for two years just because it was simplest in terms of insurance. And then I left and it was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a couple of important points in the number one thing that it, it that kind of sticks out to me is like the whole trust issue. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think, I think people oftentimes get kind of sucked into like the hype in like, Oh, well this surgeon is like super well, well-recognized, world-renowned, they received all these awards, um, they've got to be the best and they're going to help me, like they're going to help fix me. Yeah. But usually, not usually, that's the wrong word, but a lot of times it, it might not be the right person for that particular person. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. There, there are plenty of very talented surgeons who don't have all sorts of fancy awards um, who are able to help people solve their issue. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of the day, it's how well do you trust that person? And sometimes it could even just be as simple as take, taking yourself kind of out of the picture, kind of look at 
the scenario from like the outside and be like, okay, if this person is talking to my mom, like, would I appreciate how they're talking to this person? Yes. And I mean, I, I, I joke with my patients all the time. It's like, oh, well, you know, did this person pass the mom test? And, um, or like if, if you had uh, another PT, like, would you send your mom to this person to get cared for? Yeah. I mean, I hope that I pass the mom test 100% of the time, but I might not. I don't know. But I've treated many moms, so I know I'm doing something right. Um, but I, I think that's a simple simple kind of litmus test um, to see. What's, you know. what's the compassion? I think that's a big part of it. And I think yeah. um, part of it for me is also respecting the client or the patient, whatever relationship you have. And so in my experience, the uh, practitioners I have been most frustrated with are the ones that generally treat me like I'm an idiot, whether I'm talking about a musician injury or something else. And I think that's partially why I have learned as much as I have about endocrinology, because I've had to change doctors like six times, because sure. I've moved to so many different states since 2012. I've lived uh, Boston, Ottawa, Reno, Texas, Seattle, and Along the way, I always have to get my prescriptions. I always have to get a referral. And so I have learned how to say what's going on in my body really efficiently because, oh, man, hospitals are terrible at sending records. I've had just... Oh, my God. I worked at a hospital. It's a disaster. (laughs) It's a disaster. Um, I still haven't gotten my records. It's been two years in Seattle from Texas, and I've requested (laughs) them three times. But I I think that's um, when I have a practitioner that hears me and says, like, I I promise I have this thing, and here's the data, and I'm sorry I don't have records, but please believe me, and I need, you know, I need help. That means a lot to me, and I think when we extrapolate it, if we just think about musicians, that they're saying, like, hey, my neck really hurts, and I don't know what I'm doing, and my teacher says that it looks okay, I really need your help. I think treating that person with respect rather than like stop playing or play on the other side of your body or she should play the piano or, you know, like whatever, there's a myriad of possible responses. Yes. Um, but within the things that you just said, there's another really important point that definitely needs to be talked about too, is that people shouldn't be afraid to be their own advocate. Yes. You got to do it. You have to do it. And and also, it's like, in order to be your advocate, um, you have to have some kind of knowledge behind that. Yes. Um, so not to say that you need to go to grad school and get a DPT <laughs> degree. Um, but, you know, you when you go to a doctor, sometimes physicians or any practitioner only have like five minutes with you, right? And so... If you spend time being like, oh, well, I think this hurts and I think that and I sometimes I do like if, if you can go in not using all the technical lingo, because I mean, that's like a whole nother language in itself. But if you come in and like, OK, well, these are the patterns. This is what I'm dealing with. You're giving them enough information to kind of make heads and t- heads or tails of it. Yeah. Um, so, and then also being able to speak up for yourself if you don't agree with what a practitioner is saying. Any decent practitioner should take that and be like, okay, so that doesn't work, or that doesn't seem like it's going to work. Like, 
let's this is what I think plan. the problem is. Let's yeah. let's try and come together and figure out something that does. Yeah. Um, I think I think you it needs like we were talking about earlier. It needs to be a dialogue between um, the practitioner and the patient um, or the client, whichever term you want to use. Um, and it's not just like you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you what's wrong and then you leave, but then you like, don't agree with anything that they say, but you've already left. Like, you know, your, your time there is to help each other kind of figure out the solution or start to figure out the solution to help you out. Yeah. And Um, I think it can get really tough when you do have multiple diagnoses. And I I totally understand that frustration because um, if you have someone that's maybe on the hypermobile spectrum and then they go see a rheumatologist, but there's really nothing they can do. And then they find out they also had really low blood pressure. And like, I I think one of the things that's frustrating is in this era of specializations, you actually sometimes want someone that could collect more of your data and have a composite image. And I think that's why actually physical therapy is so important because you guys do have at least some composite information and some composite output compared to women having to see a gynecologist and then seeing an endocrinologist and then going seeing somebody else. And, you know, I think that that's what's actually nice about PT and the direct access is that you have the opportunity to potentially collate, hypothesize and create a plan more than some yeah, of the other practitioners. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I, when I was um, exploring my different options, like, should I become a PT or an OT? Should I go to med school? Should I, Whatever. Um, I decided on PT because um, even though it was a while ago and the profession has evolved a lot since I have gotten out, um, it has um, given me the opportunity to really spend a lot of time, a lot more time than some of the other practitioners I listed um, with my patients in order to be able to figure out what the issue could be. And there's been plenty of times where a patient will tell me one little piece of information. I was like, have you talked to somebody? Have you talked to a nutritionist about this? And then I kind of help field them. I'm, I almost, in a sense, become a case manager <laughs> um, where I'm like, okay, well, you know, I think this is a little bit outside of my scope, but I think if we can pull in somebody who knows a little bit more about this and we communicate with each other and then if I can get someone else like maybe the three of us can kind of figure out, you know, what the best path is for you because you're absolutely right. You know, we live in a very social, uh, socialized. No, I wish. Um, no, we live in a very specialized uh, medical environment right now where everyone kind of has hunkered down in their own fields. Um, and you don't have that general practitioner approach quite as much as you did before. Um, and there's some benefits to that, but then there's also some trade-offs. There's, there's some not great things about it because same thing, you come in with, you have a patient with left shoulder pain, you go to a cardiologist, they think you're having a heart attack. You go to an orthopedist, they think you have a rotator cuff tear. You go to a pulmonologist, they think that you have a, like something going on with your lung, you know, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. Um, Right. And it could all be true, but which one is the one that's causing the, the symptoms the most? Yeah. Yeah. So I think to wrap up, uh, 
see a physical therapist before you're falling apart. <laughs> if your physical therapist is not, or any clinician or any professional, if they're not really showing you respect or listening to your issues, uh, consider finding somebody else um, or making sure that you yourself are communicating your needs and your concerns in a direct and efficient way. Uh, to find more physical therapists that are interested in working with performing artists, you can go to PAMA. Because I don't think the uh, APTA has a registry, right, of your uh, special interest group? Uh, we do, but it's not, it's, it's, it's internal. internal. It's, okay. not, um, it's not, well, if you go to findapt.com. Let's go uh, do that. Uh, findapt.com. That's not right. I will give you, I, I will find a link for you. Uh, <laughs> if you go to the link, um, <laughs> you will be able to um, access the whole registry of um, the APTA members. Okay, and I found in it. That, and, that's, and that's public facing. So, um, and within that, a PT can list performing arts as one of their specialties or orthopedics or neurology as like one of their specialties. Okay. I um, found it. So that's, a, so that's a good place to start. Um, worst case scenario, if you can't find anyone local, um, you can always just reach out to me and I will try and find someone um, yeah. for you if I can't help you myself. Yeah. If you don't live in my state or the states that I'm licensed in or whatnot. So yeah, I think that's good. Is there anything uh, parting shot wise that you want to end with or that you feel like we missed? No, I think we covered a lot of different areas, but um, yeah, I, I can't stress enough to try and find a practitioner that works well for you and that you can connect well with. Yeah. Um, and you know, those people are hard to find. And so once you find them, you know, establish a relationship with them. So you don't have to start all over every single time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, have that person kind of be in your team. You're, you're throughout life, you're trying to build a team of people to surround yourself with. And I always think that a PT should definitely be part of that team, <laughs> but I'm biased. Yeah. But any anyone who um, will take the time and listen. Uh, that's always a good start. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. This was a good one. Talking about PT, how to find a good clinician, and so much more. So thank you all so much for listening, and stay tuned for Janice's PAMA chat in March. And you can find that, oh man, acronym for that. Is it PAMA.org? Is it PAMA.org? It's I, artsmed.org. Artsmed.org. Gosh, so many acronyms. None of them have <laughs> websites that are the acronym. So artsmed.org. Janice will be there. Stay tuned for that. And we'll talk to you soon. So that's our show. Special thanks to Abby Swidler for composition and performance. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Maybe write us a review. You can find us at beyondthepracticeroompodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening.